from the East Coast of America and the front lines of American healthcare and healthcare research, now in the proud, bold new year of 2008, it's the Dashing MD Podcast. Glad to be back with you again after a prolonged delay. Much of which was spent sitting on a couch and eating pie. Happy New Year and happy holidays to you all. Hope you all had a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. And I am thrilled to be back with you in this bold new year. A year which, as this episode may tell, uh, is going to be full of uh, some interesting discussions and some interesting changes and some interesting thoughts. Hopefully interesting to you, definitely interesting to me. And that's uh, that's all I can ask for, I guess. The podcast, as always, streams on iTunes. Just search for Dashing MD. You can usually find it from feeds.feedburner.com backslash Dashing MD. If you're not an iTunes user, that's feeds.feedburner.com backslash Dashing MD. And email is always received and always appreciated and always replied to at dashingmd.gmail.com. So... That said, so glad to be back with you, and really a very happy new year to all of you. Not a huge amount to report podcast-wise in the month or so since I've last broadcast. The blog has been uh, going strong. It's uh, That blog address, again, is dashingmd.blogspot.com, and uh, I'm going to be posting a bunch of stuff up on there uh, soon as well that uh, I will be talking about in this podcast. My New Year's resolutions for 2008 include to uh, be a little bit more regular with my podcasting and uh, to make sure that the blog uh, adequately reflects my thoughts and my interests and and what I have to uh, offer to you in in a textual form as well as in this semi-irregular podcast. So hopefully if you are checking the blog and you you in the next few months will find that... uh, you are seeing it updated more regularly with more cool stuff. And hopefully you'll be hearing from me a lot more as well. I think this podcast is going to be split up into uh, a few sections. The first section is a story. The second section is a look at uh, some some things in the media recently that I think have been pretty interesting and compelling. And uh, the third section is going to be a discussion of where the podcast is headed, which has a lot to do with where I'm headed or not headed. Um, and it's uh, hopefully going to pose some questions that we can uh, then try to answer over the course of the next few months. So the first part of the podcast is a story, and it's a sad story. Um, it's a story about a family that I knew growing up in Colorado, um, who, uh, my parents were, were great friends with and who, whose daughters I babysat, um, before I moved when I was in high school, they were 10 and 12 years younger than me. And, uh, we heard on the day after Christmas that as they were driving to, Idaho from Wyoming, um, they were in a horrible car crash, and the mother and father and oldest sister were killed on the scene um, in a massive pile-up car crash, chain reaction crash, wherein their car was, it sounds like, hit 
um, lost control and, and then was clipped and sort of ended up broadside to a big semi moving fast and uh, they never had a chance. Um, amazingly, the one, the youngest daughter survived and was released from the hospital a few days later. And I tell this story because I think it's a it was a real benchmark for me in the way that I realized how I think about tragedy now, having been on the receiving end of so much trauma and so much disaster. I mean, as would be expected, my whole family was totally distraught um, by this news. Uh, but my response was, I mean, obviously I was, I mean, it was a body blow. Um, but at the same time, m my response was sort of a self-chastisement for feeling anything more than I feel for any patient that I see coming through the trauma bay doors because everybody that I see is someone's friend, someone's son, someone's daughter, someone's wife or husband. Everyone who comes through that door has someone who cares about them the same or more as I cared about these people. So who am I to feel selfishly hurt by their tragedy when it's it's only because I knew them well that it that it matters more to me because I see so many people that I don't know well and and yet I know I meet all the people in the waiting room who they matter to and I guess I had a real a real moment of feeling terribly I don't know if guilty is the right word, but, but skeptical of my own subjectivity on this. Um, and I, I, I'm still struggling now, you know, a week or more later, still struggling with that response, with knowing, having seen, I mean, how many horrible things have I seen in the emergency room? You know, I've seen, I've seen, Families come in, all but one of them killed multiple times. I've seen, um, you know, family members, you know, come in horribly mangled on major holidays, on their birthdays. I've seen, um, you know, the, the image that keeps coming to my mind is the guy, and I think I talked about this in one of these podcasts, um, guy on Thanksgiving of my intern year who had been out working and uh, doing some construction projects with his family when a concrete block fell off a roof and landed on his head, um, which actually in and of itself wasn't terrible. It was sort of the, the, the weight was borne by his shoulders mostly, but it drove his head forward and he was working on a bulldozer at the time and the bulldozer had little controls these sort of rod controls with plastic knobs on the end and it drove one of those rods with one of those knobs in the head through his eye into his brain and across his the midline of his brain and he was conscious and awake and alert at the scene as they 
cut the rod away and stabilized it and brought him to us and he was uh, intubated but but responding to commands and clearly knew what was going on while we were there and yet had an injury which we knew was going to kill him um, because there's just no way to survive that injury um, you know we we tried but that because it crossed the midline of his brain there were too many vascular structures involved and there's a, just there's no history of people surviving that injury um, so when we took it out as we had to try to do uh, we knew that he was basically a hundred percent going to be brain dead when we were done with the operation and I remember going out to the waiting room to talk to his family and explaining that although he is awake or responsive and aware of what was going on then that there was almost no chance that he would survive his surgery on Thanksgiving and who am I to feel some extraordinary pain because it happened to be my friends this time on the other hand you know these are people that I know in a way that doesn't interfere with medicine they're people who are such a part of my history and people who I I still thought of a lot who people who I I really feel in their passing part of me has died um people who who I treasured for knowing that they only remembered me at a time that I'd forgotten almost and maybe that's I mean that's the selfishness of grief isn't it that it's you mourn for the person but but I think on some level you mourn for how they knew you you mourn for the loss of their memory of you and maybe that's how it's different and I maybe I just need to come to terms with how selfish that sounds um but it's been a fascinating philosophical journey to think about that and to consider the meaning of what it means to experience suffering as a job versus to experience suffering as an individual. And I think this, I mean, this is the first, fortunately, I'm very thankful and very lucky. And this is the first real tragedy that's happened since I've been a doctor. And, um, to me, um, and, uh, and I'm not sure quite what I think about it. And we're going to come back to that as part of uh, section three. But let's get on to uh, a couple of things that I saw in the media that I thought were really interesting. Um, one is a uh, an episode of This American Life, which if you don't know it, um, I can't recommend it enough. It's It's a wonderful weekly radio program. Um, coming out of Chicago uh, that uh, explores sort of the American experience through a series of narratives and stories and is just brilliantly produced and, and really plums some depths of, of what it means to be alive in America today in a way that uh, I think is truly inspirational um, and really a work of genius. Um, and you will find on my blog, dashingmd.blogspot.com, uh, a link to the thing I'm talking about. And then you can look at the website for yourself and subscribe to their podcast, which is uh, way more excellent than this podcast and 
comes out way more regularly. Um, anyway, uh, they recently had an episode about a girl who gets a heart transplant from uh, a boy who's been killed in a mistaken uh, gang assassination. Uh, 11-year-old girl who gets an 11-year-old boy's heart. And um, and it's the story of how this girl's parents track down the family who uh, gave the heart and then they sort of get to know each other and deal with the expectations that they have with uh, one another and and the girl particularly feels very weighed down by the responsibility of sort of living her life but also living a life for you know her donor whose name she knows and who she knows a lot about she goes to the trial for the people who murdered him and it's it's really it's striking. Um, it's an it's an amazing story, and I just cringed through the whole thing. I, I think that the spirit was that it was supposed to be this wonderful, uplifting tale of two families from completely different backgrounds coming together and learning to find a common purpose. And all I could think of the whole time was what a horrible, horrible mistake on the part of the transplant team and the social workers to give this family anything to know about about where their donor came from and and it really just drove home to me the absolute necessity of keeping donor information 100% private um, and recipient information 100% private the the terrible moral and ethical ramifications of of weighing people and in this case a kid you know who had no choice weighing them down with the knowledge of their donor and allowing them to feel as though this organ is anything other than their own seems to me to just be a, an absolute to absolutely fly in the face of of everything that's right about transplant ethics. I think there's, you know, in my experience, or recipients, we would always go into the room to consent them for their transplant when I was on the transplant service, and um, I do a whole show about the transplant service. If you're new to the podcast, you can scroll back a few episodes to uh, late June and uh, you'll hear me talk a lot about my transplant experience which was incredible Um, but when we were on the transplant service we would always be asked by the recipients you know where is the transplant coming from and our instructions were to just give absolutely no information like no information at all about this because because often people die in sort of who are brain dead die in newsworthy ways and if you know that your donor you know died from a fall off a cliff it's not that hard to find out how many people died from falls off a cliff in the couple of days before your organ arrived and suddenly you know exactly who this person is and you're driven to connect i think people naturally want to connect with the organ donor and the the donors naturally would want to connect with the recipients and I think that to do so uh, creates such a, a fraught environment, such a such a potential for real damage to be done and and real pain to persist and and really removes the I think put imperils the whole principle of transplant and the whole principle of donation. Um, which I think really sort of has a lot in common with adoption. I mean, this, you're adopting someone's organ and, 
you're its parent. There's not you shouldn't consider there to be a a previous owner of this, and you shouldn't feel beholden or obligated to them. You should feel grateful that it happened. You should feel grateful that a donor a donation was made. Um, you should feel infinitely grateful for that. But to try to find that personality, I, I think, is just a, a recipe for disaster. And and you can see in this story that that they flirt with that, and in the end, come to a sort of a heartwarming end. But I uh, I think they were lucky, um, and I don't know that that would have worked out necessarily in the long term for most people. So that's a fascinating story, and I highly recommend listening to it and, and to any other This American Lives. I mean, they're really great, but this one was directly on topic for for what we talk about here on the podcast. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts and comments on this. Do you think that makes sense? Do you think I'm completely crazy? Um, DashingMD at gmail.com to let me know either way. The next item is uh, uh, an essay written by a guy named Atul Gawande, who is a surgeon in Boston who's written a couple of great books, actually, about surgery and about medicine, layman's guides to how doctors think, um, which I think are often kind of right on the money and really worth taking a look at if you haven't seen them. Um, The names are, uh, the first book is called Complications, and the second book is called Better. Um, And his name, again, is Atul Gawande. That's G-A-W-A-N-D-E. And I'll put links to this uh, essay of his up on the on the blog as well. He is uh, a surgeon, and he's won a MacArthur Prize and one of these Genius Awards and and a bunch of other prizes. He writes for the New Yorker. He writes often for the New York Times as well. And doctors actually find him a a little bit tough to take because basically what he does is take things that everybody in medicine knows perfectly well and then writes about them as if they're his ideas, as if he's the first person to think of it. And he's not. I mean, and and that's annoying to the rest of us, I think. But, you know, to his credit, he is the first person who's writing about them, or at least writing about them in a way that the sort of the mass population can, can read and understand and appreciate, and I think he deserves full credit for that. Anyway, he wrote this article in the New York Times recently about a, a recent initiative that's been sort of started and is sort of sweeping through medicine, um, which is basically a checklist for getting the lowest number of possible complications when inserting central lines. Central lines are sort of big IVs that go in central veins. Um, So they usually go in in the shoulder or in the groin or in the neck. They go into very big veins, and you can use them to give large amounts of fluid, um, and you can leave them in place for long periods of time, relatively long periods of time, you know, usually on the order of at least, you know, a week. Um, Whereas IVs, you need, need to be changed on a regular basis. These can, you know, in some cases, stay in for months at a time. They're incredibly useful, and they're put in all the time, particularly in intensive care units. And um, there's a relatively high complication rate with this, uh, because you're sticking a big needle into someone's skin, you know, sticking it deep down where it often, or at least has the potential of hitting the lung, it can hit the heart, it can hit big arteries and cause big bleeding problems. And you can get big infections around the site, um, which can lead to their own complications. And so there's been a, a big drive to make sure that particularly the infectious thing is taken care of because it's it's almost always through carelessness that these things get infected because there's a way of, to put them in in a very sterile way. 
And so they've come up with up with a checklist for how to do this. Um, and they've been trying to implement this checklist across the country. And they've been studying the effect. And the effect seems to be profound, that if you have a checklist that makes sure that you do certain things while you're putting the central line in, which basically just means, you know, you, you have to, like, wash your hands, you have to make sure you're using sterile gloves and a full sterile gown and draping everything out properly instead of just sort of treating it like an IV, you know, where you just clean off the site and stick this thing in um, without taking sort of broader sterile precautions. Um, you know, it drops the infection rate tremendously, and then people do better, and they stay in the hospital less long. I mean, all the measures that we use for determining whether something is a good idea in medicine totally suggest that this is a great idea. But it's been a study because we needed to prove that that was the case. And that study got shut down because people weren't being consented for the right to take part in a trial when we introduced the checklist in the hospital. And... It really speaks to a con- and one of these huge conundrums in modern medicine, which is that you really, you know, now more than ever have to educate patients and get their consent before you enroll them in any sort of trial. But at the same time, uh, this technique is just a little printed reminder for physicians to look at while they're putting these things in. And if you actually had to consent every patient that you did this on, the study would cost billions of dollars. It couldn't could never be done. Um, there's, there'd be no way to effectively conduct it. So, in the face of those competing interests, you know, initially the individual institutions had decided that there was no need for specific consent every time the decision was made to use a checklist for putting one of these lines in versus not using a checklist. Um, but the government came in and said that in fact that constituted research and the patients all needed to be individually consented and the study was stopped and the potential implications are profound I mean people will probably die as a result of that decision but at the same time it is standing up for a valuable principle um, which is that patients need to be consented when there is research being performed and there's certainly plenty of stories you can tell about people who have died because that hasn't been done because they have not been adequately informed before being enrolled in a clinical trial and they were not given the opportunity to say no to something that ended up hurting them terribly um there's endless stories of this being true the biggest one the most famous case the one that everyone studies or maybe the two most famous cases one is the nuremberg trials which uh you know look at the sort of atrocities of the nazi era when patients were subjected to medical experiments without not only without consent but against their actively against their will and then the other is the study um, that was done uh, in Tuskegee um, which is a, uh, a terrible example of, of medicine gone horribly amok where men were entered into a study to study the long-term effects of syphilis were found to have syphilis but were never told that they had syphilis were not given any instruction about how to prevent the transmission of syphilis we're not given any treatment for syphilis, even after the treatments were discovered. This study was started before antibiotics, but they came out you know, while the study was in progress. But these men were never treated, despite full knowledge that they could have been treated. And they were, uh, they were allowed to progress into very late-stage syphilis um, and infect all of their partners with syphilis under the full auspices of, uh, of this 
nationally, federally funded study that only stopped in the late 70s. That study is the reason why African Americans very rarely participate in uh, in clinical trials. It, we lost the trust of a huge segment of the population by doing that uh, study. And so there are these rules. Um, and, and again, it's a question of balance. I think Gawande's article does a nice job of sort of advocating for one side of things and, and points out the risks of this. Um, but, but there are two sides to the story. And I encourage you to read that article, which will be uh, linked again off the blog uh, in the, from the New York Times. And, um, and let me know what you think, dashingmd at gmail.com. So now to segment three of the podcast, which is where is this podcast going? And more broadly, where am I going? As I sat around finally on a vacation of some length, um, I mean, it had been over a year and a half since I had a full week off. And uh, so, you know, with that time, I, you know, I got some sleep. I got to sort of get my bearings. And I got to think a little bit about where I'm headed, what I'm doing. And uh, I've got some real questions and some real doubts about whether residency is what I want to do about whether our surgery is where I want to be, um, about whether this is the best future for me, or whether there are things that would be more rewarding or at least more easily attained for the rewards they give. Um, you know, I, I'm looking at another seven years of training making, you know, now I make about $44,000 a year before taxes. By the time I graduate, I'll be making in, you know, in 2008 dollars, probably $65,000 a year. I'll be 37 years old. And I will have passed up, you know, most of all of my 20s and most of my 30s in the pursuit of something that kind of is prohibitive for pursuing other things that I'm interested in. I mean, I, 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 there are a lot of things out there that I could do and I'm interested in and which I feel could be satisfying and which could make use of medical knowledge. There are consulting options. There are opportunities in finance and investment banking. Um, if I want to go the route of wall street boredom, um, there is politics, there's writing, there's, uh, any number of things. So I've sort of decided that that over the next six months or so, I'm going to try to explore what other options there are out there for doctors. Because I really, I, I don't know the, the answer. I, I think that um, there's a whole world out there of, of doctors doing things other than sort of staying on the track of med school, then residency, then, you know, practicing physician than retirement and uh and i think that you know there's sort of willful ignorance on the part of people who are in the system to look at other options because it means sort of acknowledging that that medicine isn't necessarily the end all and be all that there is another world out there or a whole number of other worlds out there so i think that where this podcast is probably headed in the next six months and hopefully you'll uh, you'll enjoy this journey as much as I expect I will. Is is looking at options, looking at what else is out there for someone with a medical degree. What choices are there 
Um, and if you know of things that people are doing or know of things that people are talking about or you, you've sort of struggled with this yourself, I would love to hear from you and, and create a little conversation between us about, about what's going on out there in the wide world for physicians in this modern era. The prospect of, of working uh, in government, you know, I've not been a great fan of this administration, but uh, I, I'm so filled with hope and optimism and thrill at the prospect of change. Um, and I won't go any further into my politics than that, but, uh, but I think you know, there's a side of me that just wants to kind of drop it all and uh, and get on the train of uh, of where our country seems to be headed because I'm really excited about it and I feel like you know treating one patient at a time is satisfying in a way but but the system is so broken and and only getting more so and I feel like maybe the way to to really do what I want to do with medicine is to to approach it not from the door of the emergency room but but from Washington, D.C. So we'll see. Uh, it's going to be an exciting time, and I'm excited to have you along for the ride. Let me know what you think. DashingMD at gmail.com. And uh, otherwise, I uh, hope you enjoy this podcast and then the podcasts soon to come. As always, uh, check us out on iTunes or uh, check us out at feeds.feedburner.com backslash DashingMD. Till next time, Happy New Year. Take care.